Welcome to Global Voices, the critical knowledge podcast, loud and clear from the world to you. With Global Voices, we aim to bring together experts, activists, and students for forward thinking and cross-boundary discussions about topics of global relevance. I'm Sascha Husenbeet, and I study social psychology and international studies at Roskilde University in Denmark. And I'm happy to uh, introduce you to our podcast. Hi, my name is Juan Camilo Reyes. I'm from Colombia. I'm a student of just science uh, in the University of Los Andes. And I'm Shreya. I research student activism and universities, and I'm from Tata Institute of Social Sciences in India. The three of us together welcome you to the first episode of Global Voices. With most of us quarantined at home, uncertain of the future, and with testing times ahead, it is natural to feel blue and maybe even panic a bit. In such times, however, it is equally important to understand the situation and its implications. The novel coronavirus has infected more than 200 countries and over a million people all over the world. The outbreak poses critical challenges not only for the public health and medical communities, but for each and every individual. These new changes are making us unsure about our lives. To make sense of all that is happening, we got in touch with researchers and activists of various fields from all over the world to deliberate on the global pandemic. Beginning today, in the course of the next few weeks, we will discuss important aspects of the current crisis, some of which don't receive enough attention presently. We hope to capture from the most basic, momentary and individual concerns to the larger global picture. In this way, we wish to generate insights and discussions that will encourage listeners to free themselves from the atomized realm of their rooms for a moment and consider the planetary implications of the historical moment we are currently living. Today, we start with the basics. There are some questions that bother us all. Will there be a cure? How long will the panic last? Will life ever get back to normal? Or do we have to start imagining a new normal? To answer these questions and some more, we have with us epidemiologists Martin and Catalina. We welcome you both to our show. So our first guest is Catalina González Uribe, Associated Professor of Public Health at the School of Medicine at Los Andes University. Leads the development of postgraduate programs in epidemiology, conducts research on social inequalities in sexual health reproductive health and vector transmitted disease, directed the components of contraception, fertility preference and maternal health of 2015 demographic and health service, DHS for Colombia, passionate about interdisciplinary work, the development of social indicators and mixed methods research, member of the Urban Health Research Network in Latin America and the Caribbean, studied Anthropology, Psychology, and Masters in Anthropology at the Universidad de los Andes, Masters in Social Epidemiology, and Doctorate in Epidemiology and Public Health at University College in London. And our second guest, who is with us right now as well, is called Martin Van Weyen, and he is a postdoctoral researcher at the Department of Science and Environment at Roskilde University in Denmark. Martin is originally from the Netherlands, and studies infectious diseases, which is his main field of expertise, um, epidemiology. With a special interest in vaccinations, his research focuses on infectious disease, disease modeling and vaccine preventable diseases. 
Martin has researched the impact of vaccination programs, vaccine economics and government expenditure, where he has a particular focus on researching the effectiveness of vaccination programs. He also has insights on infectious diseases from a historical angle, for example about the 1918 influenza pandemic, and has been interested in studying infectious diseases since he was a child. Um, and my first, uh, our first question is going to be to you, Martin. Um, and it's, it's just about you. Um, what has gotten you here as an expert on epidemiology? What has sparked your, your lifelong interest in studying this? And um, yeah, well, what do, you, what do you want to get off your chest? <laughs> well, that's a big question. Uh, well, first of all, uh, thank you for inviting me to this podcast. Uh, I really look forward to uh, working with all of you uh, over the next coming weeks and see what kind of interesting discussions we can have here. Um, so regarding your question, um, well, actually my interest in infectious diseases already started when I was pretty young, uh, during my, uh, my years as a small student, uh, when I was 12 years, 13 years old or something like that. I saw this, uh, this video, this movie called, I think it was Outbreak, uh, where they also, uh, they already had this epidemiologist Uh, combating some Ebola-like disease, and I thought, yes, that's 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 cool. That's what I want to do. I want to study infectious diseases, and I want to be like this person. Now, I didn't really end up like this person since he really was out in the field in the tropical rainforests and things like that. And that's I figured out that's probably not really what I really want to do. So I rather sit behind a desk, uh, behind a computer all day. Uh, doing uh, calculations, statistics, gathering information about infectious diseases, reading old books, diving into databases, and trying to figure out a little bit more about what we can uh, learn from basically what we what has gone gone on in the past in terms of these infectious diseases. So that's that's what I do on a day-to-day -day basis, and uh, that's also why I find this so incredibly fascinating. Because what basically what we can do in the future, what we can do now, is whole, wholly dependent on what we can learn from the past. So if we get some more insight from what happened in the past pandemics, in the past epidemics, then perhaps we can better get a grip on what's going on right now and what's going to happen in the future. Um, yeah, I have a, a short follow-up to that, which is... It struck me as, as interesting and as curious that something that might have been quite, you know, um, a niche or maybe even boring to a lot of people, which is statistics about diseases and uh, uh, things that we have considered to be problems of the past, because now we have the World Health Organization and we have modern science, you know, the, and things that we either have taken for granted or that we have found boring, like statistics. Um, about diseases have suddenly become the, the center of attention of the whole world. And in a way, so you, uh, who, who was previously, you know, uh, not in the spotlight, has, has moved in a way into the spotlight. Um, what has, how does that make you feel? And, um, and yeah, how do you relate to, to that role? Well, you're certainly right that um, history of infectious diseases or, um, yeah, yeah, how would you call it exactly? Let, let's just put it as history of infectious diseases. Um, it has certainly be a, sort of a niche field in epidemiology and basically in 
the world in general and not so much because people don't value it but more because people think uh, or have this feeling at least that's how I have always encountered it as well that well that was 10 years ago that was a hundred years ago 200 years ago you cannot possibly translate what happened then to nowadays we're better off researching what happens now However, when we're talking about these kind of pandemics, and especially nowadays, people have realized or start, really start to see that, oh, shit, we, we have this, this out, big outbreak now, and we really don't know what's going on. So we need to get some information somewhere. And the only way to get that information right now in this critical time where it is very difficult to get accurate information what's going on right now, we better look at the past. And so what they've also realized with this outbreak uh, with the coronavirus now is that we can actually look at, for example, the 1918 um, Spanish flu outbreak uh, pandemic and see what happened back then and see how did society react? How did we do with all the mitigation strategies, these strategies to try to prevent the disease from spreading? How did that how did we do it back then? And can we learn a little bit about how we can maybe do it right now? And so that's, I, I th really think that these big shocks to society, like big pandemics, highlight the need for our understanding of these past outbreaks. Whereas if we're, we don't have an outbreak, people really don't see much point of it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a, it's an interesting observation. And uh, now um, moving to, to Catalina, our guest from Colombia. Hello again. Um, what, what, what I thought, um, I mean, I have basically the same question to you about your background, but um, what's interesting about your background is that as opposed to Martin, you have not been your whole life working on, on this, but you have made a sort of an inroads into, um, into the field um, after having previously studied anthropology and, uh, and psychology. And I wanted to know what has um, what has made you um, take that inroads, and um, and how do you um, since you are passionate about interdisciplinary work, how do you uh, connect? How do you make connections between uh, the human studies, which is uh, anthropology and psychology, and the study of epidemiology, which is of course also about human beings, but from a different angle? So how do you how do you connect them? Thank you, Sasha, Andrea, and Juan Camilo. Very happy to be here with you. Um, this, this initiative is, is fantastic. Um, thank you for inviting me. Well, th these are clearly interesting questions. Um, you're making me um, think a lot. <laughs> While Martin was, was giving his response, I was going back like uh, 10 years, 15 years. I had a flashback to starting um, university degree. And well, what has always attracted me um, and has fascinated me for, for a long time is human behavior. And anthropology was my, was, was my venture into that, um, you know, field of, of knowledge. Why um, do we as individuals and in our own cultures and societies uh, behave in certain ways? And health has been uh, perhaps one of the most enigmatic uh, areas of behavior for for those of us who are interested in, in social sciences, as you mentioned, um, health implies um, many um, perceptions, actions, knowledge, and even feelings as crucial factors that determine the way um, 
we make decisions about our own health and the health of our groups and societies. So, so I guess that's how I, um, I started first with this passion of trying to understand human behavior. Then I discovered health as being this um, huge area of knowledge where human behavior was almost um, unpredictable. Um, and, um, and then as I was doing uh, my studies from a qualitative point of view, I realized that um, you also need uh, data, you need facts to provide very good information for um, health policy uh, leaders. And that's when I had this, um, you would call it change or jump. I, I feel it's some form of kind of a mutation, trying to adapt to the qu new questions I wanted to ask myself. So it was no longer um, why, but I also wanted to quantify um, how probable were those uh, behaviors to be shared by um, larger groups in society. And that's how I moved into epidemiology. And, um, and I, now I feel it's, it has been a fantastic journey. I think um, if you just stand on one of these two um, areas, I mean, just on social sciences or just on data science, you miss out a lot of the uh, interesting questions that many of your colleagues are asking. Uh, from different fields of expertise. So going back to your question about interdisciplinarity, uh, clearly I think that is what uh, really fuels my my interest, my daily interest in trying to understand um, our behavior as humans when it comes to uh, decisions related to health. Um, data can give you like the structure of the building, if, if we can think of a way of putting this into a picture. But then if you want to, to get the color, the depth, the three-dimensional you know, perspective of that building, then you need to go and ask people why they do that, how they feel about it. Um, and that's how I, I combine both areas. And I always try to, to work collaboratively with people that have very different uh, forms of knowledge and expertise. Hmm. So yeah, I th I really like that uh, metaphor with with the mutation, um, the the kind of um, complementarity of of uh, qualitative and quantitative uh, information um, is also something that we've considered in structuring our podcast, where we basically want to move from you know the basics about this um, this virus to um, more wider implications or even more personal implications in later episodes. And so um, I think when it comes to the uh, historical background. I have a question for both of you, and it's what are the important things that people should talk about right now? You know, because people doesn't know what's going on in the future and a lot of information is right now in the air. So I want to know what are the most important thing to talk right now. Okay. Uh, th thank you for that question. I, I think it's a very interesting one. Um, and the first thing I would say here is that people here should be definitely categorized as a different sort of levels. Are we talking about people working in government? Are we talking about people working in public health researchers? Or is it the general public? Um, so if we're talking about, uh, let's just 
talk about the public health officials first. Well, the most important thing that right now I think that they should be talking about, and that's also what they're already doing, is how can we, um, for example, in Denmark, open up society again after uh, having very strict mitigation strategies in place for some time? How can we slowly open up uh, again, make sure that people go come back, go back to work without increasing the number of um, people that actually really get ill, uh, at least not too much. And so that's something that they really should be talking about. And that's also what what's happening in many parts of the world, at least those parts that are already this far in the outbreak that they can think about uh, starting to um, release some of those restrictions. Uh, others will still be thinking about how can we actually make sure that our healthcare system is not collapsing under the pressure of new cases coming in every day. So that, that's, I think, what they should, what's most important for them right now. For researchers, uh, there are still so many questions about the coronavirus that we don't have any answer to. Uh, what is immunity? How long does immunity last? Are we actually immune? Uh, how many people are actually infected in the population? Um, those kind of questions are very important. Um, development of vaccines, uh, what's the best strategy to go about that? Um, are there any treatments that we can um, use quickly now before we have this vaccine available? What's going to happen uh, in the near future when we start opening up society again? How many people can we expect to be infected? Those are very big questions that still uh, need answering. To some degree, we know answers, but to a large degree, those are still open questions uh, that need more more research. But for the general public, um, that's sort of the, the, la the, the last year, I would say, well, um, I don't really have any big questions that they should be asking right now except how do we get back to work and um let, let's just hope for the best so maybe maybe Catalina has more and more insight about that in terms of of human behavior thank you Juan Camilo for your um for your question I agree with Martin that we need to think of well who do we want to ask these questions to? You know, it's going to be very different depending on the audience. But, but um, if there's anything I've learned from my anthropology studies is that we also need to think of this in terms of time. We have questions that we need to ask ourselves in the short term, and we have other questions for the long term. So we, ha we need, there's a need for immediate responses on very basic things like logistics, like health provision of services, like mental health of everybody, of the health professionals, of those who are suffering, of their families, um, of, of, you know, of trying to understand uh, this problem, this social phenomenon from very different angles. Those are the short term. We need to look at those very quickly. We need to address that. There's this huge competition right now in terms of markets where presidents are calling directly, you know, the, the industry, uh, the fabrics that produce the ventilators that have the face masks, um, because they have the money and the power to do so. So those are relevant questions that um, set us back you know to 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 
other questions that have always been there present and how do we balance this um, issue of, of power around of what we can buy in terms of health provision and things that we need to uh, secure structurally to have our populations in more or less uh, good living conditions. So um, our countries are, I'm thinking in terms of Latin America and of course other regions in the world, we're now seeing uh, what it is to leave uh, many years without enough investment in science and in health provision and specifically uh, without a better investment in the, the quality of life of our populations. We can't solve in a month the lack of infrastructure that we have, the lack of science that we have, the lack of uh, quality of, you know, good drinking water for our populations. And this pandemic has just pushed us against the wall when it comes to this. Now we're feeling that. We're seeing the burden of not investing in that. And uh, we may not have um, enough resources to acquire everything and on time to save enough people. So those are, for me, urgent questions that we need to be addressed right now, but that will leave us a lot of um, tasks uh, for everybody from wherever you're standing in society, either academic or not, um, in the longer term. How are we going to be prepared to face something like this in, in a few decades? Because it's going to happen again. It's happened before. This is not the first time. And now more than ever, we're traveling so easy and moving around the world so easily that it is, it is even more likely, you know, to, for this to happen again, even though we have the modern science. In the long term, my question for the long term for the different audiences would be, well, um, what do we think is normal life? Because we're, we're wishing to go back to you know out on the streets and leave our lives as we used to be but i don't think that's that's going to be uh, the right way to, to look at this our lives have changed the world has changed i don't mean to sound negative or doomed but it's it's not that is that we've been faced with something that we had to stop our lives to understand what is going on and to make important decisions of getting together and protect ourselves. So by staying home, we're saving lives, right? We're saving health professionals from the burden. We're saving our governments for, you know, from high economic and social burdens, but we're not avoiding everything. I mean, it's impossible to prevent all that's going to come afterwards. So my, my question on the longer term, because it's going to take some time for us to understand this, you know, to digest, this information you can't just have a philosophical change you know in the, the way you view life one day to another it's going to take some time um, younger generations are going to understand this in a different way what is going to be our normal life what is going to things that we've taken for granted we need to rethink that look at uh, the fantastic changes we've seen in terms of e ecological indicators you know of wildlife just just running around um even a drop in temperature 
because we, we stopped doing a lot of things, but we can't just, you know, never do that again. We need to fly again. We need to, to be together again um, because human beings are social, you know, animals. So, so we need to interact. We'll need to do that, but we need to think of that in a different way. And, and that would be like my basic question, a very philosophical question for everybody, depending on where you stand. Um, short term, how are we going to deal with the, you know, with the life crisis we have at the moment? Okay, so, so, so right now the most important thing for general public is think what, what is coming on in, in the future, no? Like, well, I think that the people uh, need to start to think about that in the past with the other pandemics, like Martin talked about the Spanish flu. Like, uh, I think we have some examples in the past, like when the people need to start to think about the future. It's the, I think Shreya has uh, a question about that. Yeah, uh, so I, what I also wanted to ask earlier, um, that Martin says that uh, the Spanish, uh, like he studied the Spanish flu and Catalina also looks at anthropology. Um, so I, I had this question um, that uh, like we understand like how Catalina very nicely put that uh, we don't know what the new normal is going to be like and it's something that we are all going to uh, think a lot about and this is something that we are all going to face. But I also wanted to know that how um, special this pandemic is like uh, were the earlier pandemics uh less devastating more devastating or like how were they different and is this something very unique like for our generation it is definitely very unique but is it very unique for like human history in general that's that's, that's a good question um and i do think that this pandemic is uh unique in a couple of ways actually uh first of all it's the way we react to it that's basically number one we, we've had big pandemics uh, of respiratory diseases before. Uh, we had the 2009, that was the most recent one. And then we have had a couple of other influenza outbreaks uh, before that, the Hong Kong flu, the Asian flu. And then we had, of course, the, the Spanish flu in 1918. And before that, we had Russian flu as well in 1889. Um, so yes, there, there have been a couple of big of these respiratory pandemics. Um, and I think the main difference here for this one is um, if we're talking like a little broader perspective is how we responded to it because uh, as Catalina also mentioned we, we we travel a lot more so this thing this pandemic traveled so fast around the world that basically in a couple of months it was everywhere um, and that is a speed that is uh, pretty damn fast um, also for in, in a historical perspective. Now, these pandemics, they do travel, tend to travel quite quickly across the world. But I think this one caught us off guard in some sense. Even though we saw it coming from China, we were not preparing well enough for it. Even though we could see what was happening in China, we were not doing enough in the rest of the world, basically, in order to prevent this one. So how we responded to this one is very interesting and very uh, different in that sense that we didn't know what was going on, but we, um, in many cases, didn't really 
do much in order to prevent it. We underestimated the threat in that sense. Um, and when it actually did turn into a pandemic, did turn out to be really big, um, we instituted, we in a general sense in this case, and very strict mitigation strategies um, that in terms of when we did them in the pandemic were actually rather quickly. For example, with the Spanish flu, we um, the, some mitigation strategies were only enacted very late in the pandemic, whereas now in some countries they were actually enacted pretty early. Um, so that is very interesting to see how that relates to those older pandemics when we actually start to take action. Um, and I don't think that we've ever had actions on such a global scale uh, in such a short amount of time uh, towards a pandemic before. And that is very, very interesting. So we will see that this outbreak will have very, very major consequences in terms of how we look at pandemics, how we respond to pandemics, and how we actually behave during a pandemic. And that is, uh, I don't know how that's going to turn out, but it is very interesting to follow, um, to follow what's what's happening. So that answers a little bit on, on a more, more broader uh, perspective. So I, I thought it was interesting that you said that it caught us off guard, especially because you're an epidemiologist, which, and I, I would, so I would, um, you know, suppose that you have been sort of wondering about in the past and expecting the next pandemic or, you know, thinking about um, the, the, the likelihood or the possibility of, of, of a new pandemic. Um, so, so were you, were you caught off guard as well? Or do you think um, you were, you were sort of, um, yeah, how was that moment for you when you, when, when you, uh, when you saw it transpire? Well, it, 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 that says you will always be caught off guard, I think, mm -hmm. with the pandemic. Because so, uh, Catalina, if, um... if you're not caught off guard, you can stop it, basically. <laughs> so, um, but, but in, in that sense, what, what I mean is that, um, yes, we know, we knew for many years already that, that there would be another pandemic. Basically, there will be another after this one. That's, that's sort of a fact, that's a given. Um, and we actually, uh, for, for many years, the WHO has categorized this thing as disease X, like the unknown next big thing. And that turns out to be this one. Um, and there's going to be a disease Y in, I don't know how many years, but the I was thinking uh, being caught of part means more like, we know it's coming, said. but we don't know I what. mean, there, there are a lot of nice points that, but um, I was also thinking if you could throw a little light on the socio-political aspects, like given that we travel more and it travel faster, um, what are the anthropocenic reasons that you think, uh, yeah, influence this pandemic and the outbreak that we have right now? Sure. Um, uh, I'll go ahead then. Um, I think Martin made some uh, very important points um, in terms of were we expecting this? Uh, were we prepared for this? Um, the the level of you know of the crisis is definitely something that um, we were not expecting to have. Um, we trust modern science. We trust um, 
the enforcement of certain policies to, you know, to control of this. But what we usually um, miss is um, the unpredictable human behavior. And, and, and that's exactly what happened. We, we, you know, we close frontiers. We tell people to stay at home. We, we have all, all these rules. But we cannot predict what the leaders of the world are going to say and how that's going to trigger um, you know, certain responses in different areas. But um, let me go back a little bit to, to the first part of your question. Um, have we seen something like this before? Well, we, we have, um, we've had pandemics before. I do think there are um, key elements that make this one um, slightly different. One of those is social media. Um, all the, you know, the use that we all have or make and the possibility of communicating 24-7. Uh, that has clearly made this um, pandemic something different. In terms of, of numbers of deaths, for example, um, well, you, you mentioned the Spanish flu. And um, you're correct there. We, we lost almost or around uh, 50 million lives back then in 1918. That is a very big number. And I'm sure it's underestimated because as you may be aware, there are difficulties in terms of measuring this. You know, how do you measure this? Do you have all the right numbers? For epidemiologists like our, our you know, if we had any 10 commandments at all, Number two and three are clearly uh, what's the numerator and what's the denominator. And I think that is another difference. I think um, compared to 1918 with the, with the Spanish flu and uh, even with um, aviar influenza in 2009, MERS 2012, well, Ebola 2013, Zika virus not so long ago, just 2015, we clearly have much more decades of research, of uh, more sophisticated tools of diagnosis and of measuring. So our numbers are, should be uh, slightly better uh, compared to those at the you know, beginning of the 20th century. I'm, I'm thinking about the Spanish flu. Um, but that doesn't mean we're, we're missing out certain vulnerable groups. I'm sure we're always, I mean, we always have this uh, possibility of bias, this measurement error. Um, and I think that's, that's another feature that makes it uh, slightly different. We can have on real time horrible statistics of what's going on. And we use that on the media all the time. So that's different from 1918. We have a lot of, you know, loss, grief. Um, disease, deaths, uh, but we didn't have those numbers on real time um, on the internet. And I'm sure we're making uh, decisions differently. Um, it's very easy to scare large groups of people. We need to think of the information we provide to the, to the general public. Um, there are ethical issues involved that might make this pandemic slightly different. Not that we didn't have those ethical issues before. It's just, it didn't happen so quickly. It just, it wasn't, um, you know, you just need to check your mobile phone before you go to bed to see what's going on in the UK, for example, you know, in, 
Asia, and then you wake up and you check what's going on in New York, and it's, it's, it's non-stop information, statistics developing all the time. And that must have a mental health burden that we're not taking into account that I'm sure is, is slightly different. Not that we didn't suffer from it, but in, in slightly different ways. That's what I'm mm. saying. It's, it's, we're, we're facing the phenomenon in, in a different way. In terms of loss, um, I mean, I have this, this table that I can share with you. Um, we're trying to summarize 20th century. So we have Spanish uh, influenza 1918, then the Asian influenza, the influenza Hong Kong, then we have HIV, and all these first four were considered global phenomenon. So they were, um, it, the, they involve, you know, uh, countries globally. Um, with SARS, you had around 37 countries um, with real uh, numbers and statistics regarding SARS. Um, avian influenza global again, MERS was uh, 22 countries, Ebola 10 countries, Zika virus 76 countries, and we're talking around 205 countries when it comes to COVID, and mm -hmm. clearly a global effect. Um. I think it's interesting, um, the, the points that have been made by both you and Martin in the last few minutes, Spe especially when you, when you put into perspective the, the numbers of deaths from the Spanish um, flu 100 years ago. And first of all, the numbers are already large um, anyway, then in, in, in relation to the different population size, they're even bigger. Um, but what, what makes me, what, what makes that for in interesting for me is you know, one of the biggest um, points that was made uh, in the in the early outbreak of, of this um, disease, COVID-19, was, well, it's just like the flu. And um, it, isn't that, I mean, it is, it seems a bit absurd when you put into perspective the actual destructiveness of the flu in the past to say, well, it's just like the flu. Because if we, if we then would say, well, it's, it's, it's just like AIDS, then it would sound very differently because the, the word AIDS has very different connotations than the flu. The flu has, you know, uh, sort of um, been forgotten as, 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 it's, as how, how um, input, impactful it really was. And so that's why the, I think the purpose of today's episode is to create a certain um, historical awareness precisely because of uh, this, this um, strange way of, that we have of relating to history. And, um, and this is why I would return to Martin's point um, about being caught off guard, which, which has to do with the timing of it, um, and, and connect that to Catalina's point about the, the sort of the media spectacle that we, that we, um, that we experience. Because um, social media being such a large um, factor in, in our lives nowadays, combined with this, with this pandemic, um, not only in terms of um, polit political and mental health, um, but also in terms of um, in terms of how it shakes our most fundamental beliefs, because um, not when we talk about uh, neoliberalism, um, we we often already um, you know observe a, an increasing precarity of a lot of people's lives, and this precarity has now crept into their into their bedrooms, like you say, Catalina, into their into their um, atomized small um, apartments 
where they are quarantined, there's a constant precarity. And um, yeah, I would just like to um, open the, the discussion with a very broad question. What do you think are the future implications of, of such an extreme um, feeling of precarity that, that basically plunges right into a, a society that was very, in a way, assured and, and confident in, in a lot of ways about its, uh, its capacity to, um, to deal with, uh, with things better than in the past? I, I think think this again a very very good question and and I, I first actually would, would like to, to to go back to what Catalina said that indeed communication has has changed and that's probably one of the main main differences that we have now compared to many past epidemics the the social media she she explained very well and I think that's exactly precisely one of the things that you're also tying into with the, the mental health problems and how, how we should deal with that, how, um, what can this have for future implications. One of the things that I, I think is very interesting in this as well is that social media is not just a tool to get news from or to keep updated or in this case also to have these maybe uh, more adverse um, yeah, problems with it as well increasing stress during these times. Uh, but social media and um, apps and mobile phones can also be used to help combat these kind of outbreaks as what they are doing now in some countries. Uh, I think it's Singapore and China where they have apps uh, to track people um, who they come in contact with. And if they're sick, then they can very quickly through this app system send out notifications to people like, oh, you've been in contact with someone who has been ill, you should quarantine yourself. So there's there's also a another side to the social media, to the connectedness that we have now with the changes in technology. Doesn't mean that that might be a good idea. I'm, I'm a little bit impartial to it. Uh, it has a lot of problems with privacy, security, and all that kind of stuff. But there is there is definitely a, a change for both uh, the better and the worse uh, in terms of social media use and in terms of new technology adoptions. And um, I, I, but one of the other things that, that you mentioned is also the, the link to the AIDS. And in, I think there, there might be a link that is maybe not as obvious and that has to do with, with stigmas. And what we saw with the, the AIDS pandemic is the very big stigma um, that it was associated with it mainly um, an outbreak among the gay communities and uh, there was a very big stigma associated with this AIDS, having AIDS and that you could transmit it by whatever means. Oh, you shouldn't touch anyone who has AIDS, you shouldn't touch gay people anymore um, because then you get AIDS and you will die. Um, those stigmas are luckily, uh, at least not completely gone, but luckily they're less now. But we also saw these stigmas here with this pandemic. Um, for example, in, in the early days here in Europe, where people who traveled to Northern Italy, where the outbreak basically first started, um, if they traveled to Northern Italy to go on a skiing holiday, for example, and came back from there, 
there was a sort of social stigma to it because people didn't really want to contact too much uh, with the people coming back from holidays because oh you might have this new disease because you went to this uh, to the country where there's this now the epicenter and there were there were more stigmas associated like that uh, in that sense if you were tested positive or if you were quarantined then maybe even after the quarantine is over people might not be willing to uh, associate too much with you so i think that also is a very important aspect that also ties into the uh, the implications that these outbreaks have and i think one of the big ones is in this increased focus on mental well-being uh, that may have been overlooked in many other uh, pandemics in the past and that has now seen an increased interest what does this actually do with uh, our stress levels what does this actually do with how we deal with it and how do we cope in the future uh, especially for example for healthcare workers who are now working in the first line um, dealing with all these patients it's an enormous stress they work long hours they have to deal with death and very sick patients every single day um, not just with the patients themselves but also with the risk that they have on contracting this disease so i think the focus on mental health um, uh, as has been being mentioned by Kathleen, is, is actually going to be one of the more future implications that this big outbreak has and the last part uh, that i want to add here is something we haven't touched upon yet is the economics of it because there's now a lot being written about, yes, we have this big pandemic, but how much can we actually do in terms of locking things down? How much can, do we actually want to, um, yeah, restrict our society and restrict our economics? Um, what, what cost do we want to pay in order to um, stop this outbreak? There's a lot being written right now about that. And I think that the, the final answer about that is, is definitely something that's not being given yet. And I don't think it's possible to give a good answer to it, but it's definitely something that we'll, uh, we'll see a lot more of in uh, the weeks and the months and years actually to come. I, I agree with Martin's view, absolutely. And I would like to add um, perhaps two, two ideas to what he just shared with us. Um, and I'm thinking of the word uh, precarity that you used, um, Sasha, while asking us about um, COVID-19 and the world right now. Mm -hmm. I think that um, there are two key things going on, um, uh, two pieces of information that um, I've seen in many of the newspapers around the world that I've been looking at. And one key thing, and it's related to precarity, is how um, uh, the, the enormous level of interdependence that we have as human beings. Um, I think we've taken for granted that we are interdependent. We depend on each other to survive. We cannot survive alone. We are a social species, so we need one another. If someone is suffering, if there's an economic collapse somewhere, all of us will be affected in different ways. So um, precarity, particularly for all of those in informal jobs, you know, um, um, entrepreneurs, independent, people who've always been vulnerable, who've always been left out of these statistics. So who have to go and earn their living on a daily basis 
um, they can't really plan, they can't save. Um, the, these are the, the populations that are always put on the spot. And um, COVID-19 has shown how high, how large is that interdependence because it's just not only them who have always been vulnerable economically and socially, but all of us. This is like domino, you know, pieces. We depend on everybody throughout the world, globally, even though we'll never get to meet everybody, we'll never get to travel to all of these places. Something that happened in Wuhan, China has affected everybody's life. So the interdependence of our human existence, I think that's a, a major point here um, because it has changed the way, you know, we, we interact with our families, the way we think about our jobs. Um, I think there have been very interesting discussions going on that how many of us will have different views of life, different jobs after we somehow survive this COVID phenomenon. Many of, many of us will play a different role in society. And that happened because of something that in, in less you know, than a year changed dramatically the way we see life. So that's one key thing, the interdependence of, of, of us um, as human beings. And then um, the second key point that I wanted to point out, it has to do with mental health as well, but I think we're going to see two extremes here developing. We're going to see uh, a lot of solidarity on one hand, but we'll also see a lot of selfishness. Um, th these are just two, two ways of reacting to the whole thing, two ways of panicking. Um, um, the interdependence should teach us that we need to be, um, that we need to consider the other, that we need to think of solidarity as a way of surviving, that we need to think of flexibility, of adapting, you know, mutating to, to actually survive. So not the, not the fittest, not the strongest, not the richest, but who's going to be able to adapt, to be more flexible. Flexibility of mind um, is going to be key to survive. And this is not new. I mean, this, these are words that have been um, um, linked to Darwin's work and biology before them. This is, this is not uh, um, news for us. This is just, it's just someone throwing it at our faces. You, you either collaborate or you, you take the risk of not surviving. Um, but we will have both behaviors. We will have those governments that will do anything to have their own people survive at the cost of others. And those political limits, um, I think are going to be very fragile at the moment. And I think Europe is a very good example right now. Um, between Italy, Spain, Germany, UK, and everything that's going on at the moment. All those key political decisions that are being made, they have to do with solidarity, they have to do with selfishness, they have to do with trying to adapt and survive. And, um, and at the end, that's what's going to, to really um, uh, take the, you know, the, it's going to be the, 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 biggest, the biggest factor in consideration. Um, the, the, those two would be like my big uh, concerns in terms of the future. So the interdependence and um, these opposites, you know, of solidarity and, and selfishness. 
Yeah, thank you, Catalina. I, I mean, whenever I think of what will happen uh, once um, the quarantine period is over, I, I think the dichotomy of interdependence and selfishness is one of the most striking things that would come out. Uh, one of the easiest uh, ways to look at it is right now that uh, just us being well and maintaining social, physical distance and everything is not enough. Um, like we also have to ensure that everybody else is also well so that we remain well, which leads to the idea of public health care and all that. So I, I think, yeah, I mean, thank you for bringing that up. Um, um, I also wanted to know, think, know about this actually from both of you, given that um, you both are considered one of the most knowledgeable people right now um, because of the profiles. Um, so uh, there are, uh, how, do you, how do you tackle with uh, fake news and misinformation and everything that comes up? I mean, you mentioned social media and you mentioned newspapers, but then, and interdependence, but then like suddenly there's a news that, you know, like uh, Chinese sent it to, uh, I, I don't know, because, uh, because of their eating habits or because they wanted uh, to do this or maybe drinking bleach solves it or this is just a plot to remove you from God so that you cannot visit churches. So these kind of instances that come up. So um, yeah, like what is your take on it? How, how do you think we sift these uh, problematic news that come up and yeah, like how do we avoid this? Yeah, fake news. Well, fake news is, um, is a very dramatic, but also fantastic phenomenon, if you think of it. It's why are we so obsessed in trying to explain everything? We are obsessed with the idea of we need to find the costs, you know, behind of this. Epidemiologists, we, we do that all the time. I mean, um, the, the creme de la creme here is trying to find the, you know, the, this unique causal factor. And what history has taught us, and science as well, and is that it's very difficult to pin down everything to one single thing. You know, there are many, many factors affecting um, all the things that happen all the time. And, and fake news is actually one way of, of reacting to this. What is fake? Um, do we need to read only the newspapers? Are these the, is this the real news? Don't they also um, sometimes get involved in fake news, maybe without even knowing or by purpose? So then it comes to this, um, what anthropologists love, is relativism. It's like 100% relative. Everything is relative. You know, it depends on where you're standing. Um, there is clearly a lot of fake news that can make a lot of damage, that can hurt you. And... Um, I think um, it takes experience. It takes years to actually decide um, to filter, you know, what is this good or bad news. Even from the most prestigious newspaper, you can get information that can make you, um, that can bias, you know, your own thoughts, that can make you struggle with what you believe in. Um, so it's, it's very difficult, I think, to, to sort this out. Um, I think there are also uh, 
some uh, political interests behind this. There could be economic interests behind the fake news, but it's like a, a game um, and the rules have changed. There's always been this attraction, you know, by, by humans to have the information. Information equals power, you know, like with data. If you have the data, governments usually in Latin America, they don't like sharing the data. Data means power, the statistics. Knowing the status of your population means you have control of this. So fake news is, is also a way of reacting to this, you know, creating turmoil around this. Who has the real data? Who has the real information? Um, I don't think it's something you can really um, stop. I think it depends on what you're looking for. If you want to understand how communities are reacting to this, then fake news is a, is a good form of data to study this. Yeah, so you can think of fake news as data, as, um, as an object of, of study. Um, but if you think of fake news as, as something that you want to use to inform yourself, then, then you could have many sources of fake news. And it's very difficult to decide which one you know, is, is the best source. Here in Colombia, and I'm sure in many other countries, very um, uh, important newspapers have had their occasional you know, um, misunderstandings in terms of, of sources and the information they've provided. So we're not free of making those mistakes. Um, it's, a, it's a complicated question, the one you've asked. I don't know if I've provided some light into this, but, but I think of this in two ways, you know. Uh, fake news as an object of study, clearly, as something showing how, to, how we want to fight this idea of data or information as power, as control. Um, and on the other hand, how do you deal with this? Because you, do, you, you don't want to go mad around this. And um, even there's been um, advised in, in many countries that if you want to stay healthy mentally, you need to limit the amount of time you spend on the internet. You need to limit the amount of time that you listen to the news to, you know, the minimum. Um, because you can lose track of time. You can lose track of your own sense of how you feel towards this situation. Uh, I'll let Martin um, jump in. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree with what you say that, that you have a couple of different kind of sources or ways of looking at the fake news um, as a, either a study object or something that you, you absorb and you use. Um, I also would like to add something else and that it has to do with trust as well. Um, how much do we trust our data sources or our news sources? And what is interesting, I think, is that there might be actually an increase in trust. Now, I don't have any data to support this. But there might be actually an increase in trust in governmental um, sources uh, during times of crisis. And maybe you know a little bit more uh, about this, Catalina, but uh, and as far as I understood it, under when, when there's a crisis, people tend to flock towards uh, leaders or group leaders or governmental persons, at least someone with authority and someone with, with more power. And 
in terms of fake news, it actually might be utilized to uh, try to mitigate that a little bit um, by governments or by organizations in authority who have maybe more access to uh, verified news sources or verified data sources to actually inform the public in a better way and try to circumvent uh, to some extent the news that's being spread on social media and other platforms. Um, that doesn't mean, of course, that that's perfect and that that's, it will work very well. And fake news is a it, it's a big study area. Um, and the last, yeah, it, it's been actually also a big problem that has been increasing over the last years. And I don't think there's any good way that they found to try to reduce that or mitigate it. Um, yeah, so so that that's a little bit the, what what I wanted to add. There. Actually, I also want to, to add one caveat on something that I said earlier um, about the stigmas and relating it to to AIDS and I to to AIDS. I don't want to give any impression that I equate the two the stigmas that we see nowadays with the stigmas of AIDS. Absolutely not. Those two are very different. It's just the 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 idea or the link that there might be a stigma. Um, now with the quarantine and the corona as well. So that, that's one, one caveat that I wanted to add to what I said earlier. Um, so and, and with, with fake news, yeah, that's, um, I don't have much to add uh, to that besides what you, what you already mentioned, Katalina. Okay, um, so before we go to the next question, I just had a small um, point to add to Catalina's actually when you replied. Um, so I, I was like, uh, I think, Maybe the way you presented, I was kind of reminded of uh, Malinowski's Magic, Science and Religion, like which is one of the most basic readings for human societies. And uh, I mean, like kind of one of the points that come out from the book is that um, science stands for how much you know, like all that humans can answer is known as science. Like once it goes a little beyond, we turn towards magic or religion. So uh, he, he gives a nice example of fishermen when they would go to fish close by, uh, they would just uh, depend on their expertise to get the fish. But when they had to go to the high seas, they would pray to gods um, because like they, they couldn't predict the uh, high seas and they, they didn't know what kind of difficulties they would face. And uh, it, it, it's, it's like, uh, very simplistically put, it's like, complementary like till you know it's science and beyond that it becomes magic or religion and i think fake news kind of works like that like till you know what is happening you give news and once it goes beyond you just start thinking of anything and whatever would be more believable you just try to pass that off as facts i mean it's it's it will be very wrong at very levels but this was just one thought i got when kathleen answered Okay, so... Yeah, sure, yeah, thank you. I, I agree with that. So, I want to return to something that both have spoken about. And that is the response of people to crises like this. Martin mentioned the stigma that, that was generated around the gay community by AIDS. And Catalina mentioned the selfish response of people to moments like this. So I want to ask you, what negative response do you expect from people in this crisis? Response such as xenophobia, for example, related to the closure of borders. Uh, yeah, so, so 
First of all, with the stigma at the beginning of the outbreak, um, we also had this stigma to more towards um, people from China, um, where if, if they saw someone from China, they would tend to avoid them, in, in at least in the first part of the outbreak. And that's also one of the reasons why uh, I think WHO changed the name um, of, the, uh, of, of the pandemic to, to COVID-19 rather than the NCOV-19 or um, 19-NCOV um, that it was or the uh, SARS-China uh, version. And you, you see that with, with, with other pandemics as well. We, we had the, the Mexican flu that turned out to be the pig's flu in the end or the H1N1 2009. Um, so we, we tend to sort of name pandemics to uh, either their origin or towards their uh, whatever uh, country we noticed them in first, the Spanish flu as well, even though it didn't originate in, the, in Spain, uh, it sort of got the nomer of the Spanish flu. And that has everything to do with stigmatization in the end, of course. At least one of the results is that you can have this stigmatization. So I think it's, uh, in that sense, uh, the general remark, I think it's very good to see these pandemics in more of a, a, a disease rather than origin kind of way, um, just like we do now with the, uh, with, with the coronavirus. Um, here in Denmark, uh, if you're talking more about the local things and uh, stigmatization, it's um, we have the borders are closed, but that's not really any uh, re stigmatization reason. It's it's a political choice that was made in order to um, yeah try to mitigate some of the spread of the outbreak or new source new cases coming in. Um, so that's, that was definitely not a, a, a sort of xenophobic or stigmatization kind of choice that was made. Um, so that's what I know here from Denmark. Um, and besides that, I do know a couple of cases of, of people that made certain choices in order to avoid stigmas. For example, not going to a, a holiday in, um, in, in Northern Italy or not going to a certain conference in order to avoid uh, the stigma when they got back. Uh, or you went there, uh, you may have contracted disease, you may have brought it back to Denmark. Uh, something like that. I know a couple of people that have avoided those choices. Um, so yeah, that, that's what I can say about, about the local. But other than that, I don't think we, we really have a big problem in that sense here. Um, th there was a, a question that I was, or an aspect I wanted to bring in actually about, uh, because we are from three different continents right now, um, in, in a way, um, it, it's 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 a question, of course, that that translates into a, a a lot of questions. But initially, I would like to to maybe challenge you a bit, Martin, with the the idea of statistics as being a so, a sort of socioeconomic filter, because when you generate statistics about um about uh, pandemics uh, that that talk about how many people got infected and so on, um, and, and when you do, and when you transmit those uh, statistics. In a way, you're you're filtering out all of those people who are really the most vulnerable because they are outside of the the system um, of of uh, you know that 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 is required to be recorded um, by a doctor and so on. And so, I would like to mm, to bring in a concept by um, by Gayatri Spiwak about um, uh, and maybe Catalina can help me here with the exact name of that concept. I think it's about the 
the the the uh, the subaltern. That's it. The subaltern, which is the sort of the other that cannot be seen, and and it translates into a kind of north-south divide in a way, a, a line between between the north and the south. Um, and and I, I think the this current pandemic amplifies this and and really brings it to light, and at the same time filters out um, a lot of those people who are in you know on the other side of the line, which is a concept by. Boaventura de Sousa Santos, uh, the abyssal line. And so um, this north-south divide, um, I'm sure Catalina has a lot to, to say about it, but first of all, Martin, what do you think about the idea of statistics as a filter? That's, that's a very interesting question. Um, and fr from, a, from, from that point of view, yes, when, when you're using statistics, uh, you're only gonna use or find those people who actually got registered so yes if there if there are people who don't end up in um between apostrophes the the system or however you want to call it um you will not be able to see them in the statistics however that doesn't mean that we cannot calculate that because that's basically part of where the statistics comes in we do know who we register that's that's the numbers and one of the tricks is to figure out how does that represent the whole? How does that represent those who are not registered? That's one of the big questions that you need to answer with the statistics. And what we do here in, in Denmark, for example, as well, is to figure out these, uh, what we have now called them, the dark numbers, basically. Those who we don't know. For example, very, very easily illustrated here is that the people who end up in the hospital are only a certain part of the people who actually got infected. So one of the big questions there is, of course, to figure out how big is the people that, act, how large is the part of the population that actually got infected based on the numbers that we see in the hospital. Now, of course, that is that is a more statistical question, and that can also reflect uh, social differences between population groups. There might be some people who are less likely to go to a hospital or less likely to engage in the social healthcare system than others. Uh, I do think that here in Denmark and in Western Europe in general, those differences might not be as big as in other parts of the world. Whereas, for example, in the US, uh, we do know that there's a large group of people that don't have health insurances. Um, and those will tend not to show up or less likely to show up in the statistics and may be actually at an increased risk of actually contracting this disease or having more severe outcomes of the disease. And that's just talking about the more wealthy countries. Um, so this might be even worse, it probably is more worse or at least a bigger contrast in countries that uh, in Africa, for example, or in Southern America or some parts of Asia, uh, India, where where there might be, I'm just calling it a couple of regions here. It's, it's not that I actually know anything uh, specific about it, but I can easily imagine that there might be bigger contrasts there, and that actually, indeed, what you say that statistics can act as a sort of filter, but it's also the the goal, or at least one of the challenges of statistics, to see past this filter, because if we are good at our job, we have an idea what this filler is. And if we have an idea what the filler is, then we can try to sort of see beyond the filler and see at, uh, what the hole should be. 
Yeah, um, it, it's interesting, actually, because um, this 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 um, point or this uh, aspect of it relates to the as aspect we talked about earlier with with the media, um, because not only are this may the statistics be to some degree a filter and 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 require a lot of care to actually depict the nuance of of reality, but also the statistics themselves will then will then be be sort of pushed through the the media filter. Uh, and and end up in people's heads in a very partial way, and so this is why I would like um, to address Catalina because the the partiality of qu qu uh, quantitative information um, has been something that that uh, that we reflected on earlier, and is something that as an anthropologist, I'm sure you have reflected about. So um, yeah, just you choose what you would like to. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Sasha. I think um, I'd like to connect your question with some of um, Shriva's question as well about xenophobia. I think if, if you think statistics and you mentioned this socioeconomic filter, my, my view on this is that statistics is, is a language just like any other language and that means it has a cultural filter. Uh, inevitable. There is bias on it. We um, Using statistics or as statisticians, we need to decide what we want to measure. So we, we try arbitrarily to create, you know, a way of objectifying what we want to measure. We decide what goes on the numerator, so who gets counted, from which group that is the denominator. And we always miss out people. It's inevitable to, to miss out people from that denominator. So some people are not counted. We don't take them into account. And that, that turns this into a political, you know, exercise, clearly. But if we go back to, to statistics as a language, it means we use it as a vehicle to communicate things. We use it as a vehicle of, you know, to create knowledge. As we interact through English, for example, we are creating knowledge. We are creating, you know, ideas out of this. We use statistics in the same way. It just has different rules and you need some level of expertise to use it in what we consider is the right way of using it, you know. Uh, but there's also the misuse of statistics. You can, you can have very good use of data um, or you can abuse data. So um, I think that's part of what Martin was trying also to say here. You can have the best statistics, the best multivariate model, multi-level, you know, stochastic, or whatever you want, um, equations, the fanciest ones. But then the question is, why are you using that? What was the question behind that? Because the, the, the fanciest model can't uh, overcome if you have uh, very poor data, if you have very poor questions from the very beginning. Why do you want to use the statistics? And that would be my, my key question behind this, because as any other language, you can't get rid of the, the, the bias. I mean, that there, it, instead of calling it bias, you, you can say that this is like, like uh, the same way we have carbon footprint, you can have statistics footprint in a way, you know, there is, um, a print that you leave on, you know, on, on any of the phenomena you want to study. But then why would you like to use statistics for that? 
And connecting this with the xenophobia question that was asked uh, earlier uh, by Juan Camilo um, and, and Shreya a little bit as well. Um, the meaning of xenophobia is, is really fear of the unknown. When, you, when, you, the, when there's nothing that you don't, when there's something that you don't know how to explain, how to name, how to put a name onto it, how to explain what's going on, the, the first reaction, a very basic biological reaction, is to fear it. And, and you need to find a scapegoat for that. And that's when xenophobia, you know, um, appears. And I think this depends a lot on the, on the words we use to understand what's going on. And, and there's a very good example related to COVID that is generating um, xenophobia in, in other ways. And it's, um, you've, we've been using the term physical isolation, physical distancing, but we're also using social isolation and social distancing. Depending on which word we use, we're talking about very you know, different things. Governments should enforce physical distancing, physical isolation, but not social distancing. Being separated doesn't mean that we need to be disconnected you know, as human beings. And, and the idea of physical, of closing the, the frontiers should be uh, based on physical uh, separation, but not on social separation. Because when we jump into social separation, then we have the classical example of xenophobia. We're afraid now of traveling to some areas. We don't know we'll be able to go to these areas. There are cases of xenophobia against uh, health providers. So nurses and medical doctors who are providing you know, healthcare uh, are being uh, discriminated when they enter a supermarket. And behind this is this idea of, should we separate ourselves physically or socially? And we need to be very careful with the words that we use. We should be talking about physical you know, distancing, not social because then we, we run into the xenophobia. And with statistics, well, it's, it's back almost to the same basic question. Uh, what do we want to measure? What do we want to be able to provide some light into? And uh, we use statistics as a language uh, to do so, a very, very powerful language. As I mentioned before, information data is powerful. Governments that lack information lack power. Mm -hmm. Colombia has lacked power because it lacked information about all the vulnerable communities uh, that suffer, for example, um, what we've called the, the internal you know, um, conflict in our country. So it's comparable. Mm -hmm. um, so if you allow me to sum up really quickly, and then I think I'm sure um, Shreya and Juan both have a, um, their final question uh, in the pipeline. So we kind of move from the idea of that I proposed of uh, uh, statistics as a filter to what I really like as your idea, statistics being a language, um, which, which then kind of went into a, a reflection on finding new ways or finding challenges to making meaning and, and, and also challenges to, to uh, creating connection. Um, for example, one, one strategy would be to, to you know, talk on Zoom like we are right now. Um, but I'm sure there are a lot of other um, 
things that are sort of being tested. It's like a testing period, really. This 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 lockdown for for a lot of people in the world, testing different strategies of of making meaning and and making connection, um, which is an, an extremely interesting period to to reflect on. Um, so Juan or Shreya, who who would like to um, uh, take on from here? Um, yeah. So I also had one a point to add mainly. Um, so when you say statistics as a language, I, I think I think it's uh, fitting at multiple levels mm -hmm. because um, like languages also have politics involved. So I think it fits in very nicely. So you also, um, you know, like uh, how at one point uh, statistics show like how many, say how many students have shifted to online learning or maybe like uh, how people have started going to supermarkets or have stopped food delivery, stuff like that. But then there is also a population that um, does not have, say, a smartphone or a computer and you know, um, so they like go beyond statistics, something that we've already discussed, but I also like how uh, the politics of it also gets involved. Um, yeah, and uh, if Kuan has a question, otherwise uh, we can just end with final remarks from both of our guests. So I think the, the last thing for our guest is the last word that you want to say for the people who are listening to us? Yeah, I, I, I Yeah, I, I actually have a, a couple of points here, I think. Um, so, so for, for first, this is actually basically a slight continuation of the discussion about the statistics as a language. Um, I do like that idea of statistics as a language. However, I, I see it more as statistics being a tool to use. And uh, you, you made a comment that uh, there is, of course, politics in its use, but I would rather see it as the one using the tool of statistics is the one having a political view or a political meaning with it and thus using it in a specific way. In itself, I would see it more as a, as a tool than a language, unless of course you see language as a tool as well. Um, but then still, I, I would rather refrain from saying that there's politics in statistics, there's more politics in conveying statistics. Um, but that, that's just, just a slight, uh, how, how I see it. Maybe, maybe we're talking about the same thing in that sense. Um, and the last thing that I wanted to uh, mention is actually going way back uh, to the start of the podcast where uh, Catalina mentioned that there are some countries, and I think you also mentioned that your country is part of that, where may, they may have been structurally deprived over many years of improvements in healthcare, improvements in uh, infrastructure in that sense, and dealing with these pandemics and dealing with these kind of other, um, yeah, socially and um, healthcare related uh, disruptions, so, so to say. Um, and I think that's a very, very important point to make that um, we should definitely take care of improving this this base structure, the base infrastructure, and how to deal with 
uh, with pandemics, how to deal with overall basically healthcare, improving overall infrastructure, improving overall um, economies and strengthening our the basics uh, rather than uh, on the long term, rather than looking for specific uh, implementations. Um, and I, I think that's that's one thing that I would, would like to highlight there, that the importance of having a good groundwork uh, to build upon. The, so, so one thing had to do with these long-term, you know, making decisions and how to invest. Um, COVID as a reminder of where we want to be. And the, the second comment would be, hopefully in a more positive note, and is that um, crisis um, can make us uh, better, you know, people, better, better societies. In times of crisis, humans can be very, very creative. And wonderful ideas are born because of the, the crisis that we've experienced before in the past. And some of the major breakthroughs in science and in, in policy um, were, were in part uh, because of all the, the suffering that we faced before in other moments. So hopefully out of COVID, we'll have great breakthroughs. And this is not just, you mm -hmm. know, a, a dark uh, period in, in history. Uh, we also need to take out what is very uh, positive and that's coming out of, of COVID. That would be my, my final comment. Um, I would just like to connect something that you said about uh, to um, <clears throat> to a quote that I or a, 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 a citation that I encountered earlier today when I was um, watching a talk at Harvard Medical School, um, which is um, it was a, a man called Dr. Farmer who is a um, a very well known global um, philanthropist and and a doctor who has worked with with the global um, uh, inequity, uh, equity, inequity in, in global health. And he has uh, quoted um, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, who, who was the first um, African-American to ever obtain a PhD. Um, I don't know if it's the direct quote or if it's just uh, paraphrased, but he said, uh, the erasure of history is one of the mechanisms by which we perpetuate structural violence. And so um, I hope and this is kind of my closing remark. I hope that that with what we have contributed today to a, a little bit of uh, historical awareness. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, our guests, for your time. I think it was a wonderful space to dialogue and learn more. And thanks to all the people who are listening to this first episode of Global Voices. We will see you in the next episode. So thank you.